The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner. Today we'll be concluding our National Geographic Explorers series. This month, as we've heard from some incredible guests, we've learned that exploration in the 21st century often means using technology to expand discovery and conservation efforts beyond previous capacities. I'm honored to have Dr. Pardee Sabeti here with me today to explore the theme of technology and discovery even further. Pardis is a computational geneticist at Harvard University. Pardis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Um, I'm also excited, and I'd like to share a little bit more about your impressive background with our listeners before we begin our conversation. Dr. Sabetti is a computational geneticist with expertise studying genetic diversity, developing algorithms to detect genetic signatures of natural selection, and carrying out genetic association studies. And if all of that sounds like ancient Greek to you, don't worry, we're, gonna, we're going to have Pardis explain it all for us today. Uh, she's currently an associate professor at the Center for Systems Biology at Harvard University and also in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease at Harvard School of Public Health. She's a senior associate member of the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Uh, In the past, she's attended MIT, Oxford University, and Harvard Medical School, and she's held a variety of fellowships. Her work has been supported by the Gates Foundation, the NIH, the Soros Foundation, among many other institutions. And last year, she was named a National Geographic Emerging Explorer by the National Geographic Society. Uh, Dr. Sabetti's lab focuses on detecting and characterizing signals of natural selection in both humans and pathogens, and that's what we're going to be learning more about on today's program. Uh, the study of how how the study of genetics can help us eradicate some of the world's deadliest diseases. Um, so, first, parties, can you start off by explaining exactly what being a computational geneticist means? Um, sure. So, I've um, always liked biology, and I've always liked math. And I and one thing that I think about is genetics is really um, sort of uh, the application of math to biology because our genomes are made up of um, uh, a code that's made up of three billion different letters that make up our genome, and each of those letters is doing something. It's coding for something, or um, it, some some of them are important, some of them aren't. We're not exactly sure what proportion is and isn't yet, but we're getting there. 
Um, and there's a lot of different variations that exist within um, that, those letters. So humans are over 99% the same between individuals, but there are these small changes that make these differences that make, you know, different eye color, hair color, skin color, all these um, things, or our hearts, or um, that cause different kinds of um, traits and diseases. And so what we do as computational geneticists is we mine those 3 billion letters and we're trying to figure out what, um, what, which one of these letters are important for different things. So we have to develop really extreme, it's a lot of data that we're dealing with and mm-hmm. imagine that it's, each person has these 3 billion letters and there's many, many people, there are thousands of people we might study at a time. And so we have to have ways that we can um, you know, use computers to collect all that data uh, mine through all that data and look for patterns that we're interested in. And that's what computational geneticists do. Wow. So we're over 99% the same, uh, but it's in that less than 1% difference. I assume that is the most fascinating part of your work and what you look at. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, there's a lot going on in there. I mean, also, a lot of things that are the same are actually quite extraordinary, too. I, I teach a class in genetics to um, undergraduates, and I, I love to really walk them through the phylogenetic tree that links all mammals, you know, to show mm-hmm. that uh, so much of our genome is the same as uh, rodents, um, you know, rats and mice. And so I think a lot of what's the same is also quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us, both for me and for our listeners, when was the human genome completely mapped, or is it not yet mapped out all the way? Yeah, no, uh, the landmark paper that showed that the, you know, the genome had been mapped uh, came out in 2001, um, and so it's been over a decade that we've had that data, but over that last decade, we've gotten better and better at sort of getting more high-quality data, mapping all the really tricky parts of the genome that are a little complicated at the ends of the chromosomes, um, and then getting to the point where we can analyze lots of individuals to start to get a a sense of how much diversity exists. Um, And now, you know, sequencing anybody. So it costs about, um, in the order, about $5,000, although different companies will tell you $1,000 to sequence Mm -hmm. your own genome. And so it's really become possible for everybody to analyze their very own genomes. Wow. And if if I were to analyze my own genomes, say, or have, have a company do it, what kinds of things might I be interested in finding out from that information? Well, you know, so... One of the things, um, there, there are a lot of things you can begin to find out, and, and people have been already doing it and, and using different companies and sites. Um, things that you might find is, you know, are you a carrier for any uh, genetic disorders that you could pass on to your children? Say if you also partnered with somebody that was a carrier of those disorders as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things that have already been associated with different traits, and you can see your risk of those kinds of traits. One uh, classic one is something called adult macular degeneration, which is a debilitating um, sort of uh, effect of your eye that happens later in life, so people can mm-hmm. start to get that information. Um, but really, actually, the fruits of all of those studies are really still being borne out. Um, and over time... The, the interesting thing is it's not going to be a static thing. You'll get your genome and you'll have the sequence, but as each study finds a new variant that's important, you can then see what's, um, you know, what you look like for that. So there's been some you know, kind of uh, getting off the ground with that kind of analysis has had some sort of trouble in the early stages because people have tried to interpret too much and we're really just getting to that information. Um, but I do uh, strongly believe that in the next decade we will learn so much about um, how... Uh, our genetics work and our genomes work and how these variants affect different traits and diseases. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really exciting. So what are the main problems or issues? What are the main questions geneticists around the world are working on today? Um, well, so one of that, one of, there's probably, I would say, 
Well, there's a lot of really exciting ones, but let me talk mm-hmm. about sort of three general things that they look for. Great. First is actually just trying to find out what those three billion letters do. Right. So there was a, a time when the only thing we really understood were these things called uh, proteins or genes that make proteins. Mm-hmm. And those are all the little the enzymes and the different kind of compounds that we can see in our bodies that we can analyze and look at, um, like hemoglobin that carries oxygen in the blood or the melanin that's you know, creating pigmentation. Um, and that's really all we knew about. That makes about, up about 5% of the genome. But there's this other 95% that for a long time people had discarded as junk. Um, and now people are trying to figure out what that part of the genome is doing. And the more they explore and the more they analyze, they're finding extraordinary things. That all of those non-protein parts of the genome seem to be master regulators guiding how uh, cells differentiate and how um, uh, sort of governing even um, how uh, females shut off half of their X chromosomes. There's a lot of really amazing mm-hmm. things that are going on there. So that's one big component is just trying to understand all of the mechanics happening in the genome. Mm-hmm. The other big component, um, the places where I get more involved is, one, trying to understand what the variations that exist in the genome are. So how are some people different um, from each other and, and what's driving these kinds of differences? And so looking at all the single little places where there's a single change in the genome or a larger change in the genome, and what is that affecting? Um, in our outcome. Um, and then what a, a place that my lab is really excited about right now is actually in understanding the genomes of other organisms. And in particular, my lab focuses on the genomes of microbes. Um, and so just like all the sort of organisms on Earth like this, they all have their own genomes. Ours is three billion letters. A lot of the viruses that infect us, like Ebola, that's now a current outbreak, is sort of 10,000 bases. So really comparatively much smaller, but with an mm-hmm. immense impact. And so we're trying to figure out how their genomes work, what they're doing, and how they infect us. Great. So that, that was that the one, two, the three big areas that geneticists are looking at? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many different areas, but there yeah, are three sure. big areas that kind of come around my, my sphere. Great. So yeah, let's talk more about your work specifically. So I know you work with studying how um, the adaptation process works in both humans and in microbes or pathogens. Um, Can you tell us just, what can you tell us about how genes show the adaptation process throughout history? Sure. Um, So often when I talk about this, so, you know, I'm a a National Geographic explorer and that's sort of an interesting question because I you know, a lot of my work is sitting in a lab looking at a computer. Mm-hmm. But in a way, you sort of think, well, exploration goes in all directions, right? Up and out into space, across the world, and actually down to the sort of minutest levels of our own biology. And so, um, you know, we, I, I, in a way, I am an archaeologist. But in fact, actually, the, we, uh, the archaeology that we do is uh, what we call fossil-free. So um, people often think, because I, I talk about how I can tell if a mutation, when a mutation happened, and some of these mutations happened 10, 30,000 years ago. Um, but in fact, actually hidden in our own DNA is an archaeological record. Um, and I can take uh, the, um, a blood sample and extract the DNA, which is the main the component of the genome. It's the architecture of the genome. And I can look at that DNA and I can um, trace back the relationships between individuals over time. And so the kind of work that we do is actually tracing back when different mutations occurred in the genome and looking for ones that have occurred relatively recently in our history but have spread very quickly. And so the concept of natural selection is the simple idea that if a mutation is beneficial, meaning that it enhances the survival or the reproductive success of a person who has it, 
then they're mm-hmm. more likely to survive, reproduce, and pass that mutation, that change in the genome, onto their children, and their children are more likely to survive, reproduce, and pass it on to their children's children. And so, in essence, we go looking for those things that seem to have passed on between the generations very, very quickly. Um, and so, that's the sort of footprint or the signal of selection that we're looking for in the genome is a uh, mutation that seems to be very young based on the way we can analyze these genomes, but has gotten very common in the population. Thank you. And, you know, I, I love how you are thinking about the way of what exploration is, and I hope to talk about that more in the program. You know, we could, you're a geneticist, but you, you could also go by archaeologist, architect, historian, um, so many different names. So um, we just have about a minute before the break, but can you start to tell us how you determine which mutations drove a beneficial adaptation? I guess it's which ones spread very quickly, but then, then what do you do? Then what do you look for once you've, you've noted one that spread very quickly? Um, yeah, so, you know, we, we've done this analysis now. We've found about uh, 400 different things that have these really, like, striking signals of a mutation that is emerged and spread very quickly in the population. And there becomes really the hard work of then trying to find out what biologically it does. Um, I, I think when we come back from the break, I can tell you a really fun story about how we really... Um, placed a mutation to a mouse and showed all of the different traits that it governs. Um, and uh, that we can uh, talk more about that. Okay. Um, well, but, that um, sounds great. Um, thank you so much. So it is time for our first break. And uh, we'll be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with me, Rachel Wold, and my guest today, Dr. Party Sabetti of Harvard University. Don't go away. We're going to have a fun story about a mouse when we come back. <laughs> Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. 
We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is your guest host, Rachel Wold, and for Kate Ebner. Today, my guest is Dr. Pardis Sabeti, a National Geographic emerging explorer who develops algorithms to study natural selection in humans and deadly pathogens. Pardis, before the break, you were queuing up a story for us about how you and your team changed a single mutation in a mouse to see what would happen. Can you continue the story? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the neat things about mining the genome, looking for things, is you never know what you'll find. And uh, we had done a scan in, uh, of uh, several different populations looking for things that were uh, beneficial in those populations that had spread very quickly. And what we found is a mutation that appeared to be about 30,000 years old that seemed to spread out of central China to lots of different parts of Asia and into the Native American populations. Um, and this is a mutation that was in a gene that was critical for how you develop hair and sweat. So if you knock out the gene, um, individuals basically uh, have um, uh, very sort of very little body hair, very little sort of hair um, everywhere, and they also have sort of uh, defects in the way they make sweat glands. So we just know that that's just a way when we see that of understanding what the gene might do. So we're trying to figure out what was this mutation doing and why was it so beneficial in these Asian populations. So we did a number of things, but one of the um, kind of key things that we did is we took that single mutation and we placed it into a mouse. And so mice are really great models because they're actually quite related to humans. And so most of that gene is actually very similar, and that section of that, um, of that gene is very similar between mice and humans. So it's easy to just take the single mutation and change it and see what happens. And what we found was pretty remarkable. So the mice actually developed thicker hair on their body, all over their body. They had sort of the width of the actual hair shaft was much thicker. Oh, wow. They also developed more sweat glands. So mice only have sweat glands on their sort of palms, and we could measure that, and we noticed that the mice with that mutation that was un- important in Asia had these thicker hair in their bodies and more sweat glands, um, and other kinds of features as well we were finding. And we actually were able to see those same results um, in human populations. So by doing a concurrent study of human population, we found that actually humans carrying that mutation also have more sweat glands. Um, and others had shown that uh, humans carrying that mutation also have thicker hair on their heads. So the hair on their head becomes thicker, and you can see a lot of Asians have that really beautiful, thick, straight hair mm-hmm. um, and have uh, less body hair than we do, but actually more sweat glands on their body, which is sort of a trade-off. You reduce the hair and you increase the sweat glands. Mm-hmm. And why might these adaptations be important for those populations? You know, that's, that's the really kind of, that's the good question. So the $64,000 question. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, we've had a lot of speculation, but, you know, one of the things is that's, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have an MD and I'm really interested in infectious disease, so but figuring out this kind of thing was not what I, you know, sort of above my pay grade. But, you know, but when people ask me the kind of question of, well, you know, why would that be under evolutionary pressure? And I say, well, look at us and all other mammals, right? Kind of the single biggest difference between us when you look at it from an extreme level is, the way that we've completely changed the hair in our body and, and the number of sweat glands we have, right? Most mammals only sweat from a couple places. We sweat all over our body, and we've lost all of the hair. So you can think that thermoregulation, regulating you know, how much you're sweating, how much heat you're putting off, is going to be incredibly important. And we know that central China, where this mutation likely arose, is incredibly humid, humid climate. 
mm-hmm. in which you want to sort of increase. So this mutation actually drives many, many sort of small sweat glands to sort of across the body. It sort of increases the surface area of sweating. So it may really help to dissipate heat in a very humid climate. And so that's one speculation. Another thing that's important is humans not only have this very different pattern, but we actually can outrun... Um, any animal over long distances, right? So cheetah and, and most, like, you know, my dogs probably outrun me short distances. <laughs> but, the, um, but at long distances, um, humans always can outcompete because other animals will overheat. Ah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, thank you for giving us a taste of how your research process works. Um, and I want to change gears and talk about infectious diseases, which you just brought up, because I know right. that is the focus of your, uh, of you wor- of your work. So um, tell us, what diseases do you study? Um, sure. Well, the, there's four big ones in our lab. Mm-hmm. Um, we study malaria. We study a disease called Lassa fever, which is actually uh, the one we focus on the most, but one most people haven't heard about. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that. We study Ebola and we study cholera. So lots of nasty bugs that have, uh, are infecting human populations today and that we believe have been infecting populations for uh, centuries, if not millennia. Mm-hmm. And where are some of the regions of the world where people suffer from malaria, loss of fever, Ebola, cholera, and how many people do these diseases affect? Just rough sure. estimates. So malaria is pretty global. There's different kinds mm-hmm. of malaria that are more common in Africa or more common in Asia. Once upon a time, there's a lot of malaria in the United States as well, mm-hmm. particularly, um, you know, in, in the South. Uh, but um, so malaria, it, we, the, the type of malaria that we study is very common in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's called Plasmodium falciparum. It's the most, most deadly. Um, and it, you know, it's believed to infect um, hundreds, like, you know, in, in the order of 100 million people, and those numbers change a little bit, but also uh, believed to um, cause the death of about a million children, mostly children, uh, a million individuals, mostly children in sub-Saharan Africa. So a really devastating wow. disease. Yeah. Um, cholera is... Uh, its main sort of epicenter is in Bangladesh, uh, which is where we work. Um, and we sort of study, there's a delta in, in uh, Bangladesh that has uh, a lot of cholera sort of naturally in the environment. Um, and so there's these annual uh, events that are going on, and it's almost endemic there. And we see it spread to different parts of the world at different times. Um, Ebola and Lassa fever, those are actually more questionable about uh, how much of it happens. Mo- mm-hmm. Most of the... Uh, uh, instances that we see are in uh, Africa, West Africa, Central Africa, um, throughout. We also see instances in Asia, and more and more we're beginning to understand they might be further, you know, distributed than we think. And mm-hmm. that's a very big question that my lab is fascinated with, which is Lassa and Ebola are considered emerging diseases. They're considered diseases that are new um, to human populations and rare in human populations, and we're always worried of are they going to suddenly really spread through the population. And my, pap- my lab wrote a paper uh, a couple years ago for um, sort of a perspective piece in science where we said, you know, is this emerging disease or emerging diagnosis? Because we really don't know um, if we're seeing what we're seeing. It may just be that it's new to Western medicine and it's rare to detection, but not necessarily, um, you know, new or rare. We think they might be circulating widely in villages and in clinics today, and they may have been doing so for millennia. Interesting. So just because we haven't seen it before doesn't mean it's new necessarily or that we haven't, we haven't yeah. identified it before. So can you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just that. Absolutely. Um, Interesting. Well, thank you. Can you describe what it is that you study in both the human genome and in the disease organisms related to these four diseases? 
Sure, yeah. So in the human genome, one of the ways that we became very interested in Lassa fever was in the human genome, we're looking for those mutations that spread through the population um, very quickly. And in the first scan I had done of the human genome, the top uh, signal that I found was in a gene that's critical for the way Lassa virus enters Mm. cells. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was under selection in Nigeria. And so I began to try to understand why was there such a, like, striking signal of natural selection in this gene. And so I learned more. I actually had gone to medical school and hadn't really heard about Lassa fever there. It's not one that we talk about a lot, uh, definitely in the, in the U.S. But uh, the more I read about it, the more I realized this disease could have a very big impact because um, it does seem to be common in, in uh, large parts of West Africa. And so that was sort of in the, in the human genome. We're looking to find those signals to point us to what are the big evolutionary pressures we should pay attention to. Um, and it really, I think the most striking thing is it alerted my attention to a disease that I had not really heard about that now I think is, you know, the most fascinating disease out there. Um, I always like to say that um, if you read The Hot Zone, you'll see that the book is about Ebola, but everybody in it loves Lhasa. And in fact, Peter Jarling, who's in that book, license plate is Lhasa. So it's sort of a fascinating bug that a lot of the world experts really are interested in. Um, And so that's, you know, one thing. And now that we we actually work both in Nigeria and Sierra Leone studying Lhasa fever, where um, in the regions we work, it's it's almost endemic, and we get a lot of of cases. And we can you know, study the the virus itself. We can help to build better vaccines and diagnostics by sequencing the virus and getting technologies that can detect it in our blood as well as, you know, um, vaccines that can try to stave them off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going to be my next question is sure. how, how do you, how does that process work? You know, taking what you learn in the lab and applying it to help people in the clinics and in the hospitals abroad, you know, how, how does the technology develop from the you know, the information from your lab to drug companies or whoever's distributing these treatments. Um, you know, walk us through the process from Cambridge, you know, to Sierra Leone. Sure. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that on the human side, that's always been the big question where people, um, you know, we've you know, got the human genome and everyone thought, oh, now we'll have all sorts of drugs and medicines. And then we, you know, and it took some time and then we... Um, uh, now know a lot about the variation and everyone says sort of what do we find. That process takes a little while. It just takes a long time to get the information and then actualize it into medication. Yeah. Um, and so what, you know, what we can find is when we understand how some people develop natural resistance to an infectious disease, we can understand the process by which the infectious agent you know, sort of uh, comes into the cells and how we stave it off and we can try to mimic that in different ways and target those sites. Um, but that process is, um, you know, sort of long and arduous, and sometimes we can't mimic, you know, whatever the natural feature is um, so well. But we're, we're getting there. We're, we're making good progress. When we analyze the viral genomes, it's actually a lot more translational in the sense that by sequencing the virus, um, we can figure out uh, what are all the different, or what's all the diversity that exists in it, and we can actually build diagnostics that target that. So we can kind of immediately move to developing better diagnostics that can help us detect it in blood faster, cheaper, you know, um, in more field-deployable ways. And when we actually, the way we make vaccines, so like the flu vaccine that we make every year is basically by sequencing all of the influenza strains around the world and finding out what's all the range of uh, bugs that we need to attack in our vaccines. And so when we do the sequencing that we do with the virus, we can immediately sort of go towards helping diagnostics and vaccines. Wow. Thank you for that explanation. It sounds like you're doing 
really important work. And we just have about a minute left. Um, but I'm wondering if you could start to talk about your own personal experience traveling to places like I know you've traveled to Nigeria and Sierra Leone, um, where the diseases that you study have impacted a lot of people. In just about 30 seconds, can you begin to tell us what it's like to go there and see firsthand the impact of your work? Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely need more than 30 seconds on yeah. <laughs> That's some of the most important things. And I was just writing something talking about how the insights you develop on these diseases you can only do in the field, right? So you can sit at the computer all you want, but, um, but really working with the teams out there, experiencing it. When we come back from the break, I can tell you about my own incident where I thought for a moment I had lost a fever and how it makes you quickly think we need better diagnostics for sure. Yeah. Wow, thank you. Okay, well, we'll definitely jump right into that when we come back from a break. Uh, This is Rachel Wold, and for Kate Ebner, my guest today is Dr. Pardis Sabeti, who's a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, Computational Geneticist, and a professor of biology at Harvard. We'll be right back. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and thank you for joining me on Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. If you like the show and want to find out more about Pardis Sabeti and our other fascinating guests, read episode recaps, and get special access to additional resources, make sure to sign up for our Visionary Leader newsletter at nebocompany.com. 
I'm Rachel Wold, and today National Geographic Emerging Explorer Dr. Pardee Sabeti and I are discussing her groundbreaking work in the field of computational genetics. Pardee is using computer programs to learn more about how humans adapt to resist diseases and how we can treat deadly diseases like malaria and loss of fever and others. Before the break, we were getting started talking about what it's like when Pardee goes into the field to places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and really sees the firsthand impact of what these diseases have done to communities there. Um, Pardee, do you want to continue? I think you were going to tell a story about when you thought you contracted loss of fever. Sure, yeah. Um so uh, on one of the early trips that I had gone out actually to visit the site and help lay the groundwork for building a diagnostic ability for loss of fever on site um, so that we could do our research and also help the clinic provide the standard of care, I basically had, had made a mistake of having pasta at, a, at the hotel we were at um, uh, yeah, and sort of um, just sort of dug in, had a lot, and by the next day I was doubled over and you know had a, basically a GI infection. But it First, you know, for the first 24 hours, um, you don't know what you have. You take your antibiotics that you bring with you, and you hope for the best. But over the course of that day, we're in the area where loss of fever is quite widespread. Um, I started to build up all the symptoms that you would get, right? So it was quite a severe infection, and I had sort of numbness. So beyond sort of the general, you know, unsightly features like right. you know, vomiting and all that kind of stuff, um, I had a numbness going up and down my, my arms and uh sort of just muscle pains beyond belief, and these are the first symptoms of Lhasa. And so you start to get this sense, and I'd been in the country for enough days that that was possible that the incubation period happened. Anyways, um, over the basically within that next day, everything cleared out, but there was this period of time in which you just don't know what's going on with your body. And there's no real way to, uh, you know, kind of bring to home to yourself you want better diagnostics uh, than through an experience like that. So it would be amazing if, as soon as that started to happen, you could take a drop of your blood and figure out that, you know, yes or no, you do have a disease or not. And that's really where we can get to um, and where you mm-hmm. um, and where you kind of, you see the individuals are dealing with all the time is they don't know, right? They don't know what they have until um, much, much later in the infection. Wow. I can't thing- imagine how terrifying that must be to be somebody who knows so much about the disease and think that maybe you have it. Oh, yeah. You know, honestly, there's something strange about it. As I wasn't terrified, I was fascinated. Um, right. sort of A true scientist. Me, and I've had a couple of times where, um, yeah, like other, other kind of close calls like that, and I, I find myself more interested and, and wanting to help. So I'm a bit of a masochist that way. I think I don't, I'm more interested in that. But, um, wow. Well, it sounds like you are one of the things that would be most helpful is having quick tests to de- determine if you have a disease or not. And is that something you your lab is working on? Yeah, uh, that's right. So that's one of the big things that we work on in my lab. Um, and also just making sure that, uh, so, you know, there's part of it of developing as the sort of state-of-the-art diagnostics on site, but also another part that's just, you know, partnering with the excellent clinicians and the physicians and staff in the places that we're at, helping mm-hmm. them basically have the, the state-of-the-art um, there on site, right? Field deployable tests that can be helpful. So since that time, that actually happened back in 2007, uh, actually early 2008. And since that time over the last six years, we've been partnering together and working together. And the hospital has basically rapid diagnostics on site. It's sort of, um, and they have treatment available to their patients. And so it's, it's completely transformed the care there. Um, where before you, uh, you know, this, these symptoms actually can often be fatal and we have extraordinarily high fatality rates, over 50% amongst um, 
individuals untreated and, uh, and even uh, quite high with treatment now. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is an extraordinarily dangerous thing, but when you actually have um, diagnostics on site, they can really transform care. Can I, if you, do you mind if I tell you one more story that the hospital likes to tell and that I think is really important? Sure, please go we, ahead. At the hospital that we work at, um, these, these guys are on the front line of a disease that's sort of uh, like loss of fever and Ebola are very similar diseases, and they're on the front lines working out every year. They used to lose about three to five staff every year, um, individuals, oh clinicians, nurses, staff working with these patients that, that would themselves succumb to the disease. And since we actually were able to have diagnostics, one of the greatest success stories is that once we had the diagnostics on site, there's an early action if a, if a staff member from the hospital um, gets a fever or also is, or has a, you know, extreme exposure to the disease, they have to be diagnosed and, and tested. Um, and there's a treatment that's most effective if given in the first few days of infection. And so since that time that we began there, the hospital has yet to lose a staff. And that's been probably the, the largest impact that uh, we as a community can sort of contribute is uh, empowering the doctors to protect themselves so that they can protect the patients. Wow, that's an incredible sacrifice that those staff members make for for, your, for the sake of treating their fellow human beings. And how does this, how does knowing this, you know, seeing how dire the situation can be, how does this affect you when you're back in your lab, you know, in the U.S.? How does, how does the human side of it motivate you or inspire you? Oh, I mean, it just, it just absolutely does in every way. I mean, I remember, you know, reading about, you know, different, as, as somebody who now has a lot of people in my lab, you try to you know, read a lot of management books and think about, mm-hmm. you know, how people work and how to sort of motivate people. And they talk about how, like, you know, things you find is sometimes past performance is not a predictor of current or future performance, which is interesting, um, but that one of the biggest predictors of um, performance is uh, if you assign meaning to the work that you do. And so there's just no better way to find meaning in the work you do to be inspired by these individuals, the clinicians and staff putting their lives at risk. It makes it so that you feel committed to them. Um, you owe them mm-hmm. something for what they are doing to try to help them from our side. And so it, it, it gives me purpose and it motivates my team. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, and this is this is a good transition into the question that I'm really, really interested to hear your answer to, which is, what is your vision for the future of the study of genetics and, and also for these deadly diseases? You know, when you picture the world in 50 years, what do you want to see and what might geneticists like you be working on in the future? Well, um, so many things. Uh, they can be, you know, the, the actual future um, of genetics is, is kind of uh, limitless. And obviously one of the things we always have to think about when you get the kind of technology that can be so empowering the way it is is to do it in the right way. So I've also, mm-hmm. my lab and I have um, written, you know, ethics papers and, and different kinds of review papers thinking about how do we use this knowledge in the best way. A lot of my lab What are is, some of the, sorry to interrupt, but what are some sure. of the ethical issues that come up with advanced technology that you work with? Well, I mean, the big ones that we're going to have is the ability to, I mean, the, the, you know, there are a lot of companies out there right now that do um, uh, sort of genetic testing. The ones that actually do are the most successful at this moment are the ones that are dealing with sort of prenatal, pre um, sort of um, mm-hmm. essentially doing genetic testing for when you're about to have children. Right, and so 
this is going to be a huge area where people can start to, um, you know, deal with individuals with Down syndrome or, you know, think about whether or not they want to have children with Down syndrome and other things, but it'll start to get to the point where we can almost have that Gattaca future um, kind of description right. where you can start to select out children. And China right now has a very big initiative um, to find out what, uh, you know, what sparks intelligence. And so you will have that potential to really make a large impact on um, uh, what kind of children you'll have, and that's going to be a huge place for a lot of contention. And then the type of work I do in natural selection is always a place that's been co-opted many times in the past for nefarious purposes, people trying to, you know, um, use... Right, eugenics. Uh, eugenics and or just sort of conceptually use things as a, as a political thing, saying, well, um, you know, all human populations came out of Africa, uh, which is, is a beautiful thing. It means that that sort of, we all have our origins there, but of course somebody will always you know, manipulate that to, to suggest that we're that they're a more ancient population, which is not true at all. We're all distant cousins from an ancient ancestor that lived in Africa. Wow, thank you. Sorry for that segue, but I would I would like to uh, let you get back to your vision of the future. So please continue. Sure. Um, well, yeah. So a lot of the future that I'm, I'm working towards is an infectious disease, which I feel is. Um, uh, you know, a little less sort of controversial ground. It's trying to figure out how we can combat these de- diseases in the in the best way, um, and not there are a lot of microbes that are our friends, and trying to figure out how to root out the microbes that cause disease um, and keep the ones that actually help us in many ways. And so that's where we work. And the vision I would have for the future is one in which we, you know, every individual has the ability to diagnose on site when they, you know, when you get that cough or you start to get that nauseous feeling. Wouldn't it be amazing to immediately know what what it is in your body that's doing that. Um, and so that's, the, that's sort of where we, we work towards is sort of understanding the genomes of all these different microbes, figuring out better ways to test them at a more rapid rate, and better ways to interpret the data that we get out when we, when we look at them to understand what's the process going on. I mean, a lot of times these different infectious diseases, you'll come down and you'll feel sick, and it could be anything. Um, and, you know, and one of the main concerns is in Africa, um, the disease that causes malaria looks a lot like Ebola, looks a lot like Lassa, looks a lot like pneumonia, all mm-hmm. in the early stages. But mm-hmm. the sooner you can find out what someone has, the more of an impact you can have on their care. And so we want to get to the point where you could immediately know uh, what the microbe is in the, in the blood that's causing something and begin to affect care. Well, thank you for sharing that vision. It's clear that your work has huge implications um, for every person, really, and for the future of medicine. Um, Parties, we just have about a minute before our next break. But in that minute, I'm wondering if you could share something uh, maybe that most people don't know about genes or biology or disease or something that's just fascinating that you would like more people to know about. Um. Yeah, so uh, let me think. There's one thing I love to tell um, mm-hmm. that I that has nothing to do with my own research, but I teach <laughs> this genetics class, and it's always my favorite. Um, so I often ask the students to kind of tell me, like, who are bats related to? Who are they most closely related to? Um, and, uh, and and sort of they think about it, and, you know, bats have wings, and so they'll... Uh, uh, they'll think about, you know, birds and other organisms. And maybe actually after the break, I'll give you the answer to that question. And um, um, so who are bats more related to? I, uh, um, and then I'll tell you about dolphins, and it'll be a lot of fun. Okay. That's great. That okay. Yep. Sounds good. Um, so it is time for another break. Stay with us, and we will find out the answer to who bats are most closely related to. Um, if you are tempted, you can welcome to Google it if you think you can find out during the break. Uh, but we will be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with my guest, National Geographic Emerging Explorer, Dr. Pardee Sabeti. 
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello and welcome back to the final segment of today's Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner today. And I'm here with Pardis Sabeti, a computational geneticist and biology professor at Harvard, who is working on the leading edge of scientific discovery in the area of the human genome. And she studies the human genome and also the genomes of the pathogens that attack our bodies and cause disease. And before the break, we queued up kind of an interesting question that Pardis likes to ask her undergrad students, and that is, what uh, what animals or what organisms are bats most closely related to? And do you have the answer for us, Pardis? I do, yes. So um, I think before the break I was saying that some people will think birds because they have wings and some people think rodents because they kind of have a, you know, kind of a rat-like look to them. But mm-hmm. it's actually that they, they bats branch off the same lineage as horses and dogs and cats and cows, wow. that whole lineage. So it's this interesting thing. And so there's a great picture of a... I call it the bat dog, but this dog that looks like a, this bat that looks like a chihuahua with just large wings. And so there's about 2,000 different species of bats, and they take all different shapes. And some of them just look like little dogs. Um, some of them actually have little faces that look like horses. So it's kind of amazing. In that same talk, I tell them about, um, I say, then, uh, then tell me, you know, who is a dolphin most closely related to? And whales and dolphins actually come off of that same branch. So they also are... You know, sort of one of their most close relatives is the hippopotamus, who's also uh, within that tree are cows. And so it's this amazing thing, which is that lineage of the mammalian tree learned to fly and learned to swim in the ocean. Um, so it's kind of this, um, this amazing branch off that had happened sometime in evolution, where they, they run on land, they fly in the air, and they swim in the ocean. 
Wow, that is fascinating. You know, I can yeah. I can see why you got so interested in biology and why it's such a fascinating field. Um, you know, in the in the spirit of this being the National Geographic Explorer series, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the process of exploration and scientific discovery, um, and, and specifically the breakthrough algorithm you developed in 2001 that enabled geneticists like yourself to scan for genes that show natural selection at work. Uh, what was the process that led you to the breakthrough, and you know what was it like when you realized that you had found out something that nobody had, had known or done before? Um, yeah, well, I think the life of a scientist is spending a lot of time, you know, just sort of like thinking about a problem and then just looking at data and trying to uh, interpret it and understand it. And so I had basically been interested in um, why some people are resistant to malaria and others aren't and had been pursuing a gene that was critical for, for that process. And looking at the data, looking at that data around it, something kind of started to appear to me, and I, I started trying to probe a little bit more. And it was, in essence, this idea that I had talked about earlier in the show, which is that these mutations that are beneficial will spread through the population. They, they leave a footprint in our, in our DNA we can detect. And so that process is really looking at the data and seeing it look different from different parts of the genome and trying to understand what it does. And then I went off and then you basically go into this wormhole where a year later you're still trying to figure out how to you know, test for that thing and develop an, um, a methodology to do it. And so I've been working and working for a really long time, um, hoping that, that I was on the right track, but not knowing uh, per se. And, um, and then had finally sort of programmed this, this algorithm that I was interested in and then applied it to my data. And by the, I always say it happened to be that, you know, when I finished putting the last caveats on something, it was three, three in the morning and uh-huh. I plugged it in and the data just popped right out. And it was kind of that am- amazing feeling. And the way I was describing it is like, it's three in the morning and you know something about how humans came to evolve and to be that nobody else in the world does. And that is the most, that's the amazing thing about being a scientist is that ability to make a truly novel discovery um, is extraordinary. Wow. Wow. So it, you said, I think that you worked for over a year trying to figure this out. So obviously persistence is something that's really important um, as a scientist. What other qualities do you think help you succeed in your field? Um, uh, I think, yeah, persistence is a big one. Um, and uh, sort of creativity is another one where you have to be able to look at things in different ways and not see just what everyone else sees, but try to find a different way of looking at a problem. Um, and then just, you know, liking failure. I think that's a mm-hmm. big one is just not being, you can, I can tell the people who are going to make it in science and the people who aren't, and it's not whether or not they fail a lot or not. That has nothing to do with it, actually. Um, and some of the best scientists fail all the time. It's your, your, the pleasure you take in it, you know, and the people who get really down by it, you, it'll be a really hard road for you because it, there's a lot of that. But if you find each failure is a new sort of problem to solve and a learning lesson, then you can be very, um, you know, you can have an impact. And that's, I mean, I think that's the most important thing is really just enjoying that process because mm-hmm. scientists make one or two, you know, major breakthroughs in their careers if they're fortunate. Um, you know, some have a few more, but it's not like um, necessarily every day you might have a breakthrough. You have to go through these periods where you have to trust that you're on the right path and even if you're not, that you can make something out of it. Right, and it sounds like being in that mindset where you're open and not not too discouraged by failure is really important. It re- reminds me of another 
guest we had in our show a couple years ago, and that was the Stanford psychologist, Dr. Carol Dweck. She actually wrote a book about this mindset that is so helpful in the scientific and actually any field. So I would encourage our listeners to check that out. Um, and you also mentioned creativity. And I, I know that you're very dedicated to your work and you don't have a lot of free time, but you do have a creative outlet through music and the band that you're in. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I was a graduate student at Oxford um, for uh, right after college, and um, I have always loved music, like always, always loved music, and played a little piano as a child, but not really much of anything at all, but I was just a big listener of music. And two of my friends, um, these Americans that were with me in uh, graduate school, uh, kept a fantasy banding. They would just, every time we'd hang out, they would talk about what band they would form and mm-hmm. what they would play. And finally, I was like, you guys, you drive me crazy. Just, what do you, why don't you just start a band? And they basically said to me they need a rhythm section, which I didn't even know what that was. I was like, what does that mean? They're like, well, I'm a bass player at least, and I didn't even know what a bass player was. Um, but the next day I went out and bought a bass, and I just have been playing ever since. So I love it. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, um, it's one of those things where also, to me, it's just so much fun that I, uh, I love writing. It comes naturally to me, and um, I sort of love, love music. Wow, that sounds great. Do you see a link between having a creative outlet through music and the band that you're in and, and your performance at work? Um, I It's not like a direct link. It's not mm-hmm. that, you know, the Black music is feeding into my band or, or into my research or vice versa. But what I have noticed is in the times where I'm the most scientifically invigorated is the time where I sort of have also the most, I sort of sometimes, well, well, the way I kind of describe it is, I'll go home and a song will just burst out. Um, and it's this interesting thing where I think when your brain is really activated, um, both, both things start to kind of come naturally together. Great. Well, that's, that's amazing that you, you have that other side of you, you know, not just a scientist. Um, what would you say, Pardis, to encourage students considering a career in science? What would you say to encourage them along that path or any advice that you might have for them? I mean, uh, I, w- I mean, the thing I would say is I, l- I love, 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 love my job. I really do. It's, it is, like I said, it's one of the few things where um, you just get to create things all the time and they can have an impact and you get to interact with people and you get to find, discover new things. So I love it. Um, the big thing is most students get worn off like when it gets hard in the middle and other things seem easy. And that's the thing is there is a certain amount of time you have to invest, like anything, right, to play tennis, to play musical instrument, to learn the guitar. There's a certain amount of time you have to learn the skills in order to be able to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the more, you, the more time it takes you know, to learn and invest in doing things, the more fun it is at the top once you figure it out. Um, and so I would say don't be discouraged in that part where, you know, the other things seem more easy because um, uh, it's a finite am- amount of information you have to learn. And once you do, the sort of the potential is limitless. Thank you. So don't be inc- discouraged, kids, and, you know, keep at it. What about you personally? What helps you keep going when you feel discouraged or you've failed a bunch of times trying to figure out the answer to a problem? Um. Yeah, I just I I know that it's one of those things where it will pass. I think that's the mm-hmm. most important thing. I mean, I think mm-hmm. early on, the first couple of times that you know things like this happen, it's really hard to see. But when you've done it enough times, you're like, oh, okay, I'm just going to get back on this horse and and we'll go to the next thing. And so, we actually had a big kind of blow recently to our research program. And so I my line is always, we're just going to keep on keeping on. 
And so we always just keep on keeping on. And uh, I think we always, yeah, it's, it is what it is, and we keep on keeping on. So, um, and I think the more you experience it, the more you realize it's just a, it's a bump in the road. Um, and you have that perspective to know that where you're going is, is, is exciting and the people you're with are amazing and it'll be fun no matter what happens. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective with us, and, and I think that's helpful advice for anyone. Um, you know, amazingly, we've come to the end of our time, but I wanted to ask, Pradeez, how can we follow along with your work? Where can we go for more information? Um, well, sabetilab.org is our website, um, and uh, I have a Facebook page and a Twitter handle, although I'm terrible on social media right now. Uh, National Geographic is also great, and I'm going to try to start blogging with them, so I'm going to try to get into the, the world of social media. Um, but, uh, but right now, SavetiLab.org has a lot of that information, and National Geographic is an amazing organization, and uh, it's helping me get into the digital age. <laughs> Great, and I'll just share that again for everyone. That's SavetiLab.org, and Sabeti is spelled S-A-B-E-T-I. Um, Parties, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great, a great show and I'm very inspired by uh, your work and sort of wishing that I had become a scientist myself, but um, thank you for being with Never me. Never too late, Rachel. <laughs> Never too late. Thank you. Uh, this has been Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life with me, Rachel Wold, and my guest, Dr. Pardee Sabeti. Thanks so much for joining me this month for our third National Geographic Explorer series. Kate Ebner will return next week. Have a great day. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. want to take your organization to the next level the nebo company develops leaders teams and organizations to achieve their highest potential we provide executive and team coaching leadership courses mentor programs and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders with national reach nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision then develop the strategy goals and accountabilities that make the vision real For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 